the passage we're going to talk about tonight, I got to warn you, it's a little unsettling. It's a passage that's a little bit uncomfortable to preach, and it's a passage I imagine will be a little bit uncomfortable to hear. Uh, those of you who know me um, know that my normal mode, just personality-wise and, and in ministry, is more one of encouragement. It's like, it's going to be okay. Don't worry about it. We'll get through this. And this is a passage where we don't necessarily get to say that at the end of it. Because the words Jesus is speaking to us kind of linger over us. And don't necessarily bring us to a place of resolution right now that we can all kind of leave with kind of all of the thinking about this passage already done. I think it's going to be something that we all leave the room with a lot of questions. And that's Jesus' intention. Because here's what he's talking about. It's in Luke chapter 13. But Jesus' his point is the danger of living with an arm's length relationship with God. Let's stand up, we'll read the passage, and we'll jump into uh, Luke chapter 13. So, this is uh, the word of the Lord. Jesus went on his way through the towns and the villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will, will, those, who saved, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and then you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I don't know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and from west. They'll come from north and south. And they'll recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. Uh, Let's pray. God, we pray that uh, you would help us to understand your word, these words that you have decided uh, to reveal to us. We know that your Holy Spirit wastes no ink. Uh, He is not a vain talker, but he speaks words with intention and care and love. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us right now by your power and your grace to understand this uh, passage and to be able to apply it in our lives. And Father, we thank you for the ways over the past 13 weeks as we have looked at Jesus from 13 different angles through the Gospel of Luke. We thank you because even today, having conversations with multiple people where I see you have been at work, the evidence is unmistakable. You are the faithful God, and you love the people in the room, and you've not been shy about it. And so, Father, we thank you for that, and we pray tonight that you would hear this prayer, be here with us, and help us to understand uh, what can be a hard passage to hear. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. All right, take a seat. Thanks. In the 1920s and 30s, there's no internet, there's no TV, there's not really many radio broadcasts going on. The way you got the news in the 1920s and 30s was newspapers. Maybe you've heard the expression, uh, information is power. And so if you're the newspaper and you have all the information and you control all the information, you have a lot of power, right? 
You have a unique role in, in society. There's a guy, uh, the owner and the founder of the Chicago Herald Tribune, was asked one time at a press conference around that time, why are you in the business you're in? Why did you start the Chicago Herald Tribune? And he responded to the question in what's become a really famous quote. He said, hey, newspapers are here. Newspapers exist to disturb the comfortable and to comfort the disturbed. Or newspapers are here to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Now think about his age in the 1920s and 30s. Industrial Revolution, there's like gigantic divisions between the classes. You have like the steel barons, the robber barons up here who are just making tons of money on the backs of the little guy, right? The industrial laborers, the people in the factory all day long. And so what this guy was saying is, little guy, the newspapers are here to look out for you, to encourage you, to help you, to make sure that these guys don't steamroll over you. So he said, we're here to comfort the disturbed, to comfort the afflicted. But we're also here to speak truth to power. We're the ones, we're the only ones who have the resources, the power, the ability to speak truth to power, to investigate the big guys, to say, we're watching you. And so they would write stories and publish reports and do investigations that definitely disturbed the comfortable. Make sense? I thought his quote, his response to that question, what are newspapers here for? I thought that was a brilliant uh, picture of what the prophets did in the Old Testament. So, uh, most of y'all grew up around the church. You know, uh, you remember from growing up what little encounters between God's prophets, like Emily read earlier, between Jeremiah and, and Israel, maybe between Isaiah or Ezekiel. You, you remember some of those interactions. Some of them are sharp edges. Some of them are very soft and tender. Right? Isaiah 43. Uh, when the fires come, you will not be consumed, Israel. You won't be overwhelmed by the waters. Talks about, we read it last year, uh, last week, uh, with Stuart's sermon. Come to me, you who don't have any money, and buy freely. You who don't have any bread, and take freely. But the same Isaiah, God says through the same Isaiah. So that's kind of like uh, comforting to disturbed. But he's also, God sent his prophets to disturb the comfortable. To shake things up. To shock people back. And so the same Isaiah that said, comfort you my people, is also the Isaiah who said... Hey, Israel, if we were just listening to your talk, everybody would think you and God are really close friends. But you're strangers when you look into your heart, the deepest parts of you. You don't know him. And it's evident. Jeremiah, what Emily read earlier. Jeremiah's like, you go around telling people, Israel, it's okay, it's okay. God is love. Don't worry about what you're doing. He doesn't care about that. And he's saying, you say, peace, peace. And you put Band-Aids over terminal cancer. And so God sends Jeremiah to shake things up, to rattle his people. So how does Jesus fit into this? Well, I mentioned we've been doing this 13 weeks now, the past 13 sermons we've looked at. We've seen Jesus kind of moving through the Gospel of Luke and moving through uh, Israel as a priest, right? He's kind of moving through Israel as a priest, stooping down and healing people, comforting the afflicted, right? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the outcasts, the forgotten, the marginalized, the sinners. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. I'm the water of life. Come drink freely. But there's a few moments in the Gospels where Jesus is unmistakably disturbing the comfortable. And the fact that we get disturbed when we read it, 
I think as a, as a helpful indicator, that was meant to disturb us too. Not just the, uh, the people that he was originally writing it to. And so Jesus from time to time, like the prophets, shakes us up, rattles us, um, disturbs us, afflicts us in a sense uh, to get our attention the way the newspapers did, the way the prophets did. And Jesus is this prophet of all prophets uh, does uh, in the Gospel of Luke here. Now, why? Does he do it just to be a jerk? No. Luke doesn't include the passage because Luke is trying to say, hey, I know you've been really encouraged with my gospel, but hey, before you get too, too high-minded and think you're special, let me knock you back down to size. Luke's not doing that. Luke wrote this letter to his buddy Theophilus, this new baby Greek Christian, and Luke wrote him the letter because of why. He's like, Theophilus, I want you to have certainty, confidence. I want you to be able to sink your teeth into the gospel that you've already heard about. I want you to grow in confidence in what you've already heard. And so Luke knows if you, if me, if Theophilus is supposed to grow in his faith, mature in grace, part of that process isn't just sitting in a chair, listening to people talk about Jesus or teach you about Jesus. There comes a point when the tables turn and we have to inspect ourselves. There's self-examination. To ask ourselves, is this really true about me? Where are my desires? What do I believe about Jesus in my heart of hearts? And so this is a moment that Luke includes in his gospel to, to in a sense, say, hey, pause, time out, and holds up the mirror for all of us uh, to look at ourselves, uh, kind of using the mirror that, uh, that Jesus uh, hands us. For those of you who are about to graduate, it was this time uh, in my senior year, a couple of weeks before I graduated, when for the first time ever, I think, God put in front of me, without my asking, without my permission, a Bible study that I'd been going to. I've, ta- I've shared a lot about this uh, with you guys over the past few weeks, but this Bible study in my fraternity, and, and some guy just chooses the passage he's going to talk about that night, is a scary passage like this. It's the one where uh, the, the people come to Jesus at Judgment Day, and they say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. There was fruit in our ministry. People were encouraged by our ministry, and Jesus says, I don't know who you are. Depart from me. And that shook me to my core. It rattled me because I'd never before really wrestled with the fact. uh, I'd never really taken God seriously in a sense. It was always a game to me at some level. Christianity, the gospel, was always a game. It was hoops to jump through. God was always at arm's length. And I heard that passage and it just shattered my world. And it was not fun. Uh, and God doesn't work that way in everybody's life, but this is, this is personal to me because it was a passage just like this that God used to get my attention for the first time and as he began to, uh, to wake me up. And so here's the point before we move on. If you feel unsettled and uncomfortable by what I just read, it's okay because I think you're supposed to feel unsettled and uncomfortable. I think Jesus intends to, to unsettle us and discomfort us. Now, We're going to push this a little bit further because some of you are like, really? That doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. Uh, I've been reading a book lately called uh, Jesus Made in America. It's by a guy named Stephen uh, Nichols. And this guy says that Jesus is like most cultural heroes, like Santa Claus or whatever else. He's like most cultural heroes in this regard. He's malleable, which means like bendable. He's like Plato. You can make of him what you want. 
So he says every culture kind of bends Jesus according to their cultural values, their desires, their unique loves. Uh, And then whatever Jesus kind of is on the other side of that production process of that culture and their values, it says a lot more about the culture than it says about who Jesus is, i.e., uh, if, you, if you look at uh, the Republican Jesus, he ironically looks very Republican. If you look at the Democrats Jesus, he ironically looks very liberal. If you look at an environmentalist Jesus, surprise. If you look at uh, a kind of a, a tolerance devotee, guess what? Jesus doesn't care about anything. Do whatever you want. We make him in our own image. Cultures remake Jesus in their own image which really gets in the way when the real Jesus begins to interact with us because we're like, wait a minute, you're not acting according to the script. Why are you saying unsettling things? Why are you saying hard things? And the reason why Jesus is uh, is saying hard things is because, uh, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Why Jesus says hard things that we kind of can't wrap our heads around. What's the American Jesus? Here's maybe a sentence or two about what an American Jesus looks like. He's basically a polite redeemer who respects our Bill of Rights and our our amendments. He won't get in your business until you want him to. He'll politely stand back. And he's perfectly fine with kind of a polite gentleman's relationship where he's kind of like the lap dog. He's there when you want him, but when he's not, when you don't want him, you just kind of, he fades into the background. And that's like a, that's a uniquely American uh, Jesus, you go to any other country, you do a foreign study, you'll find out what that continent's Jesus looks like. Dorothy Sayers is a, a name you might have heard if you're into literature and stuff. She's a playwright from uh, probably the 1950s and 60s. Um, she's a Christian, and she nailed this. It is just a fun, fun uh, observation she had about what I'm trying to describe. And Dorothy Sayers said this, Hey, the people who, ha- who crucified Jesus, they didn't kill Jesus because he was boring. To the contrary. They put Jesus to death because he was so dynamic, so out of the cage that he wasn't safe anymore. And so she goes on to say that it's been left to later generations, she's beginning to speak about hers, to muffle up that shattering personality and to cloak Jesus with an atmosphere of boring tedium. She says, we have very efficiently clipped the claws of the Lion of Judah, uh, certifying him meek and mild. And she said, recommending him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. (laughs) I love that. I'm like, wow, you nailed it. You really captured what it is. Because what she's basically saying is, we have taken this lion of a God, this lion of a God, And somehow on the other side of our production process and going through the scrubber of our cultural values, out pops a poodle, a domesticated, quiet little poodle. And this is the the Jesus, the God that we begin to relate to, which we don't take seriously because who takes poodles seriously, really? Nobody takes poodles seriously. My apologies to all you poodle lovers. You're going to be very angry with me afterwards. But Jesus kind of becomes a distant prop. Look, it's not like all of us see Jesus as a poodle, but this kind of, this, this culture, this strain is running through all of us. We have a, a small Jesus syndrome. Each culture does, but this is kind of a uniquely American way that we have a small Jesus syndrome. And so that's one reason why it's so hard for us to know what to do when we bump into places in the Bible where Jesus seems to be making threats. 
or when Jesus seems to be making warnings with very serious consequences. He says, better to gouge out your eye than your whole body be cast into hell. He says, just before this passage, if you have a Bible, you can look just at the, the column to the left of what we're looking at. He says, if you don't repent, you'll die in your sins. You will perish. He says here, he says, today is the day of salvation, in essence. Are you taking me seriously? There will be a day where the door will be shut, and it doesn't matter how hard you knock. The day of salvation will be over. These are hard things to hear, and we have to make sure we're hearing the Jesus of the Bible before we push on, because a lot of us do this. We take, we don't know what to do with it, and so what we do by default is we take the Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. We take the, uh, the tender, soft, beautiful promises, which are true and valid. This doesn't diminish them at all. But we take those, and we kind of cloak and hide this hard stuff with it because we don't know what to do with it. You know? Can, do, you, do you do that too? I did that for the longest time. I didn't know what to do with this stuff. So I'm like, well, I know this is true, and I really hope it is, and I don't know what to do with this, so sweep, sweep, sweep. And it wasn't because I was trying to edit the Bible. I just didn't know what to do with it. Here's an illustration that might help you understand how those little pieces fit into the bigger story of the Bible. God is not a boring musician. He doesn't sit around heaven and play harp and flute solos all the time. These soft, gentle instruments. The Bible's an orchestra. It's a symphony. And just like God has a harp in the symphony and a flute in the symphony, He has a tuba in the symphony. He has a kick drum in the symphony. He has a gong. He has one of those gigantic pipe organs. They have the biggest pipe organ on planet Earth in Philadelphia. And I've been there for concerts. And when they play the low notes, the whole building, five stories tall with a huge atrium, shakes. And God has a big old pipe organ in his symphony too. And the point of an orchestra, the point of a well-conducted symphony is no one instrument drowns out the others, right? What's the point of them being there if it drowns them out? It's calibrating each specific instrument so that each plays its part in the whole and produces music. And so if we we edit out and, and extract the difficult sayings of Jesus, the warnings, the threats that discomfort us because they were designed to discomfort us, If we take those out, we end up with a jazz flute solo where you're like, it's it's Hallmark. And then if you take those things out and you just stick on this, you end up as a browbeating, moralistic Christian where everybody, no one wants to be around you because you're just a, a black hole of life. There's no grace. There's no gospel. There's no light. There's no life. So you see how we have to hear every instrument and appreciate the specific role that it's designed to play. And so this passage, you can think about it as Jesus, in a sense, using his kick drum uh, or using that big old pipe organ, and it shakes us, and we feel the room shake. So the question is, what key is he playing, or what's, what's, the, what's he saying? If this is kind of uh, enabling us to, to actually tune in and, and listen to him, well, what's he actually saying? Well, I think uh, what he's doing is he's saving us from small Jesus syndrome, what he's saying is he's, he's putting his finger on what I would imagine is the or one of the most dangerous spiritual sicknesses that has hit humankind since the fall happened. It's called deception. 
Here's the problem with deception. You don't know when you're deceived, right? That's what the whole word means. You don't know when it's there. It's like leprosy. It's like this, the, neur- the neurons in your skin die, and so you, know, you can no longer feel anything. You can't tell if your hand's on the burner or if your fingers are frozen. No nervous system. Deception kills the nervous system of our soul, and we can't tell we're deceived. So the question is, wow, that is a really rough predicament. That is a, that's a dead end into death unless God sees this malady in us and springs to action and speaks into it. How do you speak to a deceived person? (laughs) Wake up! That's how you get through to a deceived person. If they don't listen, you shake them harder. (laughs) You now understand parts of the Old Testament. (laughs) That's what he's doing in a lot of these places. Because it's one of the most dangerous problems. Anna and I, I don't know how, accidentally stumbled upon this new show on Fox called The Americans. I don't know, what do we get, it's actually on TV, so we've been watching this the past few days, like, we've been binging on it, let's be honest. Uh, Here's what The Americans is about, and this is like when I grew up in the 80s, and so uh, in the early 80s was the height of the Cold War. Do you know what the Cold War is? Yes, okay, good. Okay, this is is my childhood, like most of y'all were born after the Berlin Wall came down, but okay, in in the early 80s, the height of the Cold War, America and Russia hate each other. Um, And so uh, the Russians and the Americans were always spying on each other because they had to know exactly what the other side was thinking, doing, planning, so that they could respond in kind and make sure that the other side didn't get a leg up. And so here's what the Russians did. They clued into, hey, the Americans keep catching our traditional spies, like the cloak and dagger guys. And so what they did is they took people your age, and they enlisted them and paid them a ton of money as KGB agents. They sent them to America. And they went on student visas and ended up getting good jobs and staying forever. And so, and they learned English. They got rid of the Russian accents. They started to coach soccer in Little League. They started to become PTA presidents. They got the good job at the local bank. They drove American cars. They mowed their lawn every Saturday morning. They talked about sports. This really happened. Uh, And so that was the Russian strategy for how to infiltrate America. And then slowly, 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 they start moving in next door to like FBI agents and CIA operatives and just get to know them and have a beer on a Friday night and ask them, hey, what's going on at work yet? How's how's life? And they start sending all this stuff back to Moscow. Uh, And they do tremendous, tremendous damage uh, to the American government because of that. But here's the thing. There comes a point, even in the early episodes of the show, where the Russians are, these, this young couple, probably in their mid-20s, late, or late 20s, they become so Americanized, so assimilated to the culture that they begin, the line between being Russian and being American blurs. They really like America. They like American people. They like capitalism, having money, that kind of stuff. And so you see this pull between them about, should we keep doing this or not? But when push comes to shove, they, they're, they're allegiant. Their, their deepest loyalty is to Russia. And so they keep, uh, they keep spying. But here's the point about, uh, about talking about that. It is scary how well and how quickly human beings can assimilate to a culture. Sometimes it's cool, right? I mean, those of you all who are sophomores, you're probably fully acclimated to life in Las Cruces by now. 
But it's also scary how easy it can be for us to make a home in a place and assimilate there. And so what, here's what happens. You can, uh, you can assimilate into Christian culture, too. You can assimilate into church culture. You learn the lingo, kind of lose the accent of your old life. You can kind of learn the terms, learn how to talk about it. You can come to church. You can come to RUF. You can go to Bible studies. You can lead Bible studies. But those inner, deepest loyalties and allegiances never changed. It was all an outside farce. Maybe it's one that you're not in on. This is the kind of stuff Jesus is hammering down into. Do you understand why he has to hammer? Would you imagine this is pretty deep, hard stuff to get at? That's, kind of, that's why he brings out uh, the hammer in this. And so here's how it plays out. Somebody in the crowd asks him, hey, Jesus, are the people who are going to be saved in the kingdom few? And the guy's wanting a number. He's wanting a statistic. Jesus doesn't give him that. Jesus, as he always does, makes it personal. And he turns it to this, to this man and the other people in earshot. And he says, hey, don't worry about, don't worry about numbers. That's, that has no importance. You strive to enter through the narrow door. Here's why. Many will try to enter after the door has been shut, and they will knock and knock and knock. And when I come to the door and look through it, for the first time in their life, they're going to see the truth. They never knew me, and I never knew them. They mistook proximity to Jesus for being united to Jesus. They mistook um, being able to talk about life, use the words of life, with actually being alive. They mistook sitting in a synagogue with true religion, vibrant, inside out, life. And he says, how scary would it be for the first time you're acquainted with the truth to be at that moment? And so he's bringing that potential future moment into the present, and he's putting it right before us in a way that he says, we have to look inside. And we have to ask ourselves the question. Um, I'm not saying every." Don't hear me saying, we're all falsely assured. Jesus isn't saying that. Hear me say, it's worth the effort to look. Jesus would say self-examination is worthy if it doesn't end in self. It's good to inspect myself, but not if that's where I end up too. The Puritans used to say, for every one look at self, take 10 looks at Jesus. That's for you introspective types. Some of, you, some of you, it's analysis paralysis. Again, you're like me. You're going to hear this sermon. You're going to leave and you're going to be like, am I really a Christian? Do I really know Jesus? Maybe that's what life is like for you now. Uh, and that's a, that's a hard place to be. Jesus isn't sending you into a dungeon of navel gazing by yourself. This is actually, we'll see in a minute, this is a boomerang where he draws us back to himself uh, towards the end of what he's saying, which we'll look at in a minute. But he says... We need to check ourselves. Am I taking Jesus seriously or not? I'm speaking to church people. I'm speaking to every other kind of person who's in the room. This is addressed at everybody. Do you take God seriously? Or, if, if, if not, what do you take seriously in life? What are you serious about? What are you diligent and patterned and disciplined and regimented in getting at? What are those deepest allegiances and loyalties that make God a joke, that make the gospel a game, 
that, that kind of produce inside of us these cliche little college myths. You only live once. Or college is the best four years of your life, and then you get to get serious about God. Jesus would say, really? You sure about that? You're in control enough to just decide on your own to get serious about God after four years later? Or are you four years more a slave, four years more blind, four years more dead? There's a lot of people who had every intention to get serious about God after college and never came because they weren't really interested in him after. Because they were four years more dead. And Jesus is getting into this stuff and he's saying, I love you enough to tell you the truth. This is an inconvenient truth. But I'm not going to sweep it under the rug because if I do, you die. People die. Souls perish if Jesus doesn't put this on the table and make things awkward with us. All right. We've talked about that enough and how Jesus is exposing deception. But his basic point is this. There is no saving power, no transforming, life-giving, joy-producing, perseverance-fueling power in mere familiarity with Jesus. These people said, wait a minute, you grew, I grew up down the street from you. It's like when you run into that old class, uh, that old high school friend, you're like, Ugh, try to go in another aisle so you don't have to see him. And they see you and they're like, hey, I know you. And you're like, yeah, we kind of know each other. Or it's like that aunt you have back home where, um, you know, you think about her on her birthday, she sends you a little money on your birthday, you, you're polite and friendly to each other at Christmas time. But, but beyond that, do you really know each other? No. Um, And so Jesus is saying there's no power in mere familiarity. God isn't calling us to just merely um, know about him the way a historian knows about Abe Lincoln. He's calling us to know him and to be known by him the way a husband and a wife over the years more and more know each other. That's the kind of relationship God is offering, not the shallow version of that. And so arm's length relationships with God, which all of us are prone to, right? You know enough about the Bible to know that that's what my heart is left to itself. My heart will always go, strong-arm God, poodle, because I got stuff over here I'm interested in. Now, uh, coasting never leads to life. Here's the thing, as we begin to kind of see how Jesus ends this conversation. When God imagined an eternity past when he was conspiring with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how to rescue his people, when he was imagining what, it, what the rescue would look like, he never, ever, ever saw salvation as this mere bank transaction. Uh, you give me a good record. You give me, try as hard as you can. Put it down on paper. If it's enough, I'll give you this. Or give me your record, your resume, and I'll give you this. Or give me your effort and I'll give you this. Nor did he just mean it as a bank transaction of like, you give me your sin and I give you my righteousness. Thank you. Have a nice day. We'll see you when your next bill is due. He didn't didn't imagine it as a transaction. Jesus himself says in one of the most intimate moments the Bible records in John 17, the high priestly prayer, and we get to be flies on the wall as the son speaks to the father. And what he says is, this is salvation. I'm quoting directly. That they know you the eternal God, and that they know Jesus Christ whom you sent. That is what salvation is. It's not just getting your record clean so you can go to heaven. Salvation, eternal life, joy is this, knowing God as God and loving him 
because he's God. When you see him, he is beautiful because of who he is. And you can never separate who God is from what God does, right? Because he's the God with scars in his hands. And so you also, you love him for what he does. You love him for passages like this, that your father cares enough about you to tell you the truth. He's not the dad who's so nice and polite he never brings up hard conversations. He is happy to pull us back in, to sit down at the table, and to say, you have got to ask these questions. We have got to wrestle this out. And so salvation is intensely personal for the God of the Bible, which is why when these people come to Jesus on Judgment Day and knock on the door, they have no interest in Jesus. They were living some other life, some other trivial pursuit, and at the last minute, they finally need him, and so they run to him uh, at that moment. And Jesus is warning us there was something wrong long before that moment ever happened. Uh, what was wrong is they had no interest in Jesus. And Jesus is saying, do you have interest in me? Um, and the gospel is he gives grace to produce that interest. But he also calls us to check ourselves and move towards him. Here's where we end. Noah's Ark is a beautiful picture uh, of how Jesus is a better ark. Everything in the Old Testament is a mere reflector that points to Jesus being the true thing. The Exodus in the Old Testament, Jesus is the true leader of the Exodus on the cross. The Passover, Jesus is the true elder son, sacrificed so that the people inside might live. Moses, Jesus is the true deliverer. Joshua, Jesus is the true enemy killer and deliverer into the land. Abraham, father of people, Jesus is the new pioneer and patriarch of the faith. And so also Noah, the ark, Jesus is the truer ark. I saw this movie two weeks ago with Anna up in Albuquerque. And it's, you know the story. The door is shut. Uh, After hundreds of years of this thing being built, the door is shut after everybody is inside. Uh, And all the people come running towards the ark. And in the movie, it's, it's a big deal. They're trying to like claw their way in and drill their way in and everything. But they're trying to get in after the door has been shut. Now, to connect the dots, Jesus says in John 10, I am the door. It's a verbatim quote. He says, I'm the door that the sheep enter through. And so when you think about this whole message, this whole passage, and you're like, what do I do with this? What's the narrow door? The door is narrow because the door is a person. God doesn't say, hey, do all these things, think all these things, try hard enough in all these areas, and you can come. That's a wide door. He says, the door is about this wide. Jesus says, only through me can someone come to the Father. Only through the door. And it's a narrow door. But, like the door in the ark, it is a door that leads to a whole new world and a whole new life. Because everybody in that ark... Judgment was raining down on the outside of that ark, but everybody closed up in that was safe and was delivered faithfully to a new world that had been cleansed and cleaned and refreshed, and it was wide open spaces. You think Christianity is exclusive? You better believe it's exclusive. It's exclusive that Jesus is the only way to life. He is the only way to new life. That's why it's exclusive. Is it inclusive? You had better believe it. That's why Jesus says at the end of this passage, hey, get a load of this. There will come a day where people will come from the north and the south and the east and the west. Who's he talking about? 
RUF at New Mexico State's what he's talking about. He's talking about Gentiles, non-Jews, who God through the ages will chase down and bring in and wake up and rattle and discomfort so that you realize it is not a good thing to be outside of the ark when judgment comes because God hates sin. He hates evil. He will not tolerate a corrupt, crooked, dark world. And he will not tolerate crooked, dark, corrupt people. Which is why the cross is a gruesome scene. Because Jesus takes that corruption and it's like he's outside the ark while we're all inside the ark. And judgment pours down on him and drowns him so that those inside might be delivered safe and sound to a whole new world. Jesus is asking you hard questions tonight so that you and I will ask, are we in the ark? Am I in Jesus or do I play games with God? Do I just talk seriously about God or do I take God at his word? Do I take him seriously? Is repentance in my life? Do I take the church seriously? Do I take the Bible seriously? So he's calling all of us to repentance. For some of you, this might be the repentance of conversion. You realize you're dead as a doornail and Jesus is coming to you tonight, shaking you the way he shook me that night. For some of you, you're realizing, thank God I'm in the ark. I know Jesus and I know he knows me and I love him. But Lord Jesus, wake me up again because I'm groggy again. Let's pray that he would. Lord Jesus, we love you that you are the ark. You are the door that invites the sheep into the ark. We love you that you are the shepherd willing to lay down his life for the sheep. You are the ark willing to push out into the waters of judgment and chaos and destruction so that we might find life forever with our God. Jesus, we pray that in the hard passages in the Bible, the places where you take us by the shoulders and shake us, we pray that we would respond in faith that you put in our hearts, that we wouldn't push back at you. We want to grow. We pray that you would help us. Uh, We ask this in your name. Amen.